Next week, what we're going to do is hand bags, like little lunch bags, to every person who comes. And in those lunch bags, you are supposed to take them home during the week and bake cookies or some sort. If you can't bake cookies, buy some Albertsons cookie, not the Costco ones because they're terrible. Uh, but, like, you know, some good cookies, put them in the bag. Oh, get over. If that's the worst thing you hear this morning, you're doing great. Uh, <laughs> true. Yeah, hashtag true. Um, put them in the bag. Bring them back on the 22nd, and we're going to do a cookie Sunday where we have the cookies that you guys bring for everybody. If there are leftovers, we typically try and give them to first responders during that week. Seems like everybody's being really nice to first responders lately and giving them cookies. Uh, but if we try and give them to somebody who could actually use them on Christmas Eve who has to work. Uh, so we can probably take them to the hospital or something like that. Anyway, uh, so we're, next week we're going to hand out bags just to keep that in the back of your mind so you're ready for Cookie Sunday because it is a glorious day, as long as your cookies are not from Costco. Yeah. Uh, hey, welcome to Element. If you are new, uh, there are Bibles in the seat backs in front of you. If you don't own one, you can have one. If you forgot one, you can use one. Uh, if it's raining outside, you can take it and put it above your head as you run to your car if you want to, but they do suck up water, so it's going to be this big by the time you get to your car. Uh, uh, on every uh, community table throughout the room, there are sermon notes. I don't know what's wrong with me today. Uh, there are sermon notes. They look like this. Uh, on the front side, you can take some notes, the verses we cover. On the back side, some questions to reflect upon what we talk about today. If you have a smartphone, you can download an app. It is called Uversion. You click on More and then Events, and Uversion will come up by GPS in your smartphone. You will get sermon notes, verses, questions, and announcements, and everything that goes with today's message. My name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here. Why don't you stand with me for the reading of God's Word? This is Luke chapter 2, verse 14, and it says, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Let's pray. Father, this morning I ask that you would teach us to be a people who trust in the provision of your promise, and that we would live in that in our lives, that we reflect the goodness of who you are, but also people would see that we ourselves have been rescued and saved by your goodness, by what you have done, by the good news of what we call the gospel. And this morning, I ask that we would take that to heart by understanding better what it means, this glory to God in the highest. Uh, amen. Have a seat. All right, so we are doing this short series heading to Christmas called The Songs of Christmas. A few years ago, I had this idea that we should look at the songs that actually surrounded the birth narrative, because today you'll get songs about like heat misers and reindeers and presents and silver bells, but almost nobody sings those songs that were right there around the birth of Jesus. Uh, There are four songs in the scriptures, like four and then kind of one that's alluded to at the birth, and we're going to look at most of those. And to give you a heads up, we do not know the tunes of most of these songs, for all we know, they're country, and that's why nobody he sings them anymore. Um, but, but either way, uh, they are full of great theology and they're sung for a purpose. Today's song is going to deal again with the heralding of the birth of Jesus. And what is important to understand is that, like Steve talked about last week, God is always good for his promises. And so when God speaks about the coming of Jesus, the whole idea we celebrate at Christmas is the fulfillment of God's promises to us. Now you go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3 where mankind runs and rebels and falls from God and runs into sin. In that exact same chapter, God makes a promise that he is going to rescue and redeem and he is going to save. So we have to understand at the outset that this world is fallen and broken and we are not simply victims of the messed up world. We have participated in messing up the world. Uh, The scriptures, they use these words for this called sin and rebellion and that we are the way we are, not just because of environment, though it does add 
to it, but we have a nature in us that wants to rebel against all authority, and especially the authority of God himself. I was reading this article by Matt Chandler. It was a Christmas article, and he pointed out that for every scientific advancement we make, for every kind of growth in their education, for every uh, economic swell of resources, we simply reveal our hearts to be wicked by what we do with those advances. You take the internet, right? The internet is simply amazing. The internet is great, but what's the biggest part of the internet used for? Sin and rebellion. Okay, Sin and, and rebellion. you got to be careful what you type into the Googles, because if you type it wrong, you may end up at the place you don't want to be at, or maybe the place you did want to be at, but you shouldn't be there. It, anyway, you can find every crazy thing online. And even if you go back, you know, when the Greeks ruled the world, the Greeks didn't really have this word for sin, but they had this idea of brokenness in the world. When the Greeks would tell their God stories, it centered on how messed up everything was. Like, you take the god Prometheus. Prometheus is the god who gave people fire. Prometheus sees man, man is in darkness, he's cold, he's miserable, so Prometheus thinks, I'll give him the gift of fire. Now Zeus, the chief god, gets enraged by this because Zeus knows man is a moron. And as soon as man gets fire, he starts burning himself and burning other people and burning down things and the world starts to burn down. And so what Zeus does is he takes and he condemns Prometheus to be tied to a rock where an eagle comes and eats his liver every day because it grows back every day because Greek stories are so happy. Uh, But what they were experiencing and trying to put into words is that man cannot and will not fix what is wrong with man because the systems and structures and advances that man make, we make with a broken and wicked heart. I know it's a very uplifting way to start the Christmas message today, uh, but open your Bibles to Luke chapter 2. Today, we have advancements in medicine, and for some reason, everyday medicines that can save people's lives don't make it where they need to go, into the hands of the poorest of the poor. And this is not just the problem of pharmaceutical companies. It's the government in these places that don't let things get through where they're supposed to go. And until we realize that the problem just isn't out there, as we point our fingers at everybody else, but we realize the problem is also in here, until we do that, we're never going to understand our need for Christmas and the songs that get sung. God made a promise. I will intervene into the brokenness that mankind brings. Uh, he's going to bring redemption to our structures and systems and what the scriptures eventually call the new heavens and the new earth. The Bible paints a picture that what we're in right now is kind of like the pains of childbirth. And we're waiting to give birth to this new reality that God is going to do. And God's going to do that through Jesus and all of his own kept promises. So let me give you the Christmas story and we'll talk about this. Luke chapter 2, verse 1. In those days, decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger because there is no place for them in the end. So first off, you have historicity, right? This is datable, verifiable. It is the first census, not the second census. And you had people for years who said, oh, this isn't true because we can't verify that there was a census. Well, now they can, and all the people who are naysayers like, okay, I guess that census did actually happen. What you see is God uses the government and a very unfair thing that they did to still bring about his purposes and his promises because God said the Christ was going going to be born in Bethlehem in Micah 5.2. 
Uh, this made one commentator write this. He says, no one gets to decide whether or not their life glorifies God. No one. Everyone's life will bring glory to God. That's whether we intend to or not. The most ardent hater of God, eventually by their actions, God is going to use whatever they do in the end for His purposes. We may not know what they are. We may not always see it, but God always does. God uses everything, even a census, to bring about the things that He has said. Now, kind of a funny thing about this, that how God uses everything. This happened recently on something as uh, Fox News. Uh, so what happened was Megyn Kelly, when she was Fox News a few years ago, she made this statement that uh, Jesus was white. He was in this whole thing about, you know, people wanted to change Santa for being white to being something else. And essentially, she, she says this. It's an historic fact that Santa and Jesus were just white, and we just have to deal with that. Now, something, yeah, right? Now, something as, as dumb as that, can still bring glory to God. How? Well, a whole bunch of people who don't even like Jesus, who wanted to deny Jesus, started talking about the historical Jesus and that he wasn't white. I mean, if you don't know this, Jesus was Jewish. I mean, super Jewish, okay? Super Jewish. Joseph and Mary are from Galilee. You know, Joseph in particular is the line of David. He had to go to Bethlehem to be registered. So Jesus wasn't a white dude. Really, the only couple things we know about Jesus' appearance is one, Jewish, and secondly, he probably wasn't that great to look at. Uh, you look at what the, the uh, prophet Isaiah says. It says there's no way we tell by looking at him that he was God in the flesh. Think about oral hygiene. At 0 BC, it wasn't really a thing. So Jesus, most likely, didn't have all of his teeth. I mean, we hope he did, right? But, but he, he may not have. And so this feathered hair, blonde-headed, blue-eyed Jesus is just a fable. The real Jesus that walked and talked was from the line of David. And that is admitted to by people who didn't even want to acknowledge him before. So God uses all things. Awesome. It's awesome. It's awesome. Anyway, uh, God uses it all. So the thing to keep in mind is that God is a God who keeps his promises, even the small ones that don't seem to matter. Like, what's it matter if he was born in Bethlehem or not? Well, God said it, and it's going to happen. And that should move our hearts to worship and gladness and joy and confidence in him. How how about this? Um, I have been sick three times this year. Before this year, I had been sick in like two years. And this year, three times. I don't know why. But I think sometimes that sickness is a gift because it makes us realize we're not in control. Like you can go out and you can eat healthy and steward your body. And you should. Okay, I think it, it honors God. But in the broadest way possible, God is the one who is in charge of our days. God brought us into the world. He's going to take us out. He got us as far as we have. We trust him for all things. And this is why people who are in the midst of suffering, who understand God and his promises, we cling so tightly to who he is because he is gracious even in the midst of our suffering. I think as we get older, the longer we live, that is a gift because your body starts to fall apart. And as much as you thought you were in control, you realize, I am not in control of this anymore, right? Wait till you get older. It's coming, okay? So you have this idea, right? You got census, Bethlehem, no room in the end, all these things beyond their control. And yet God's going to use it all to keep his promises, even the small ones. So let's move towards the song, Luke 8, 2, verse 8. Uh, In the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger." Now, from my perspective, in this whole ordeal of Jesus' birth, the angels are the only thing that makes sense, right? And if you're going to have God in the flesh, Savior of the world, the one 
all history hinges upon, the healing of the human heart and pushing back darkness, the only thing that makes sense are the angels in the midst of this. It's not Joseph and Mary, these broke peasants from Galilee, right? It's not the shepherds, because shepherds in this time, they are nomadic. They were looked down upon by everybody. The, think of the person who would uh, buy the house next to yours, and they make it into a grow house or a meth lab. How do you feel about them? That's how people felt about shepherds at this time. They were known as thieves. They're known as men of ill repute. They couldn't testify in court cases. They would have been pulled out of the TSA line at the airport and been profiled. They were despised and rejected as a whole. Uh, in the article that was written by Matt Chandler, he said, the angels showing up, you got to almost picture like a, like a meth head and all the stuff they just stole and, and the angels show up, hello, and it's like, Hi, as you kick your bong under the rock so the angel doesn't see it so you don't feel bad. See, what you have to understand is when the angels show up to these shepherds, angels, if they show up to shepherds, they'd be like, God's here to kill me, not God's here to bring me good news. It's the total opposite of what they expect. The sky explodes to this den of thieves and these social outcasts, and the angel says, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. You know what all translates as? All. All, including them. And so often I think this is why we miss what God does in the world, because we're always looking in the wrong place. This is why God has to reveal himself. The Bible clearly says that God sent Jesus into the world not to condemn the world, but that we may be saved through him from our sins. How does he come? And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. You don't get swaddling cloths at Macy's. Swaddling cloths, what they are is the, the rags that peasants would put their babies in because they didn't have like onesies or anything like that. So they wrapped them in these cloths. They're essentially rags. And commentators, what they call this is kingdom economics, that God is doing things the opposite way that we operate to bring the most glory to himself. I can give you a couple examples of this, like at Element. Okay, uh, We have people that work here on staff that do not do it for the money because there's not a whole lot of it. Uh, I think our staff is confident. I think our staff is godly and driven and work for the glory of God in a way that shows that they are called to this because no one is going to get rich doing this. I think most of our staff could probably make more money outside of this place, but they feel called to love the Lord and love you. Like for me personally, uh, 17 years ago is when I first started working in a church. I was working at another job, and when I was offered this job, I took a $10,000 a year pay cut to work at this church doing this job. And Element, not until last year did they, were we in this position to pay me what I made as a youth pastor 12 years ago. But I do it because I love being here, and I love doing what God calls me to do, kingdom economics. But on the other side, even if Element was looking to hire somebody, if we're looking to, if we could pay what people were actually worth, we're not going to hire the meth head cracked addict who got fired from their last job for embezzling all the funds. That's not what we would do. But you look at the team that Jesus puts together from the moment of his birth, and it blows our imagination because it's not how we would do it. How God does things is so different than we do that it is so hard for us to grasp. Yet God is constantly bringing about his promises in ways that we can never guess. Here's the song, verse 13. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, here's the song about our rescue, glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. 
And they repeated that a bunch of times like a modern chorus. I don't know, but that's what we get. Probably Luke could verify. What's the response to the song? Verse 15, when the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it, the things that they said, wondered at what the shepherds told them. Because probably they some crack was involved of some sort. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. So these promises of God that he brings to fruition changes these shepherds' lives. So I need to explain to you what's going on with this song so we can understand all that's taking place. Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Open your Bibles to Psalm chapter 19. Psalm chapter 19. The word glory is a very important word in the scriptures, especially in the Old Testament, because that glory of God somehow is going to translate into peace for us. That's the promise. The word glory stretches back to before the Old Testament was written. The word the Old Testament uses for glory is this word called kavod or kavod, depending on how you want to say it. It's actually probably kavod, but anyway, I'm a white boy, so I'm going to say it the way I say it. Uh, So in uh, Psalm 19, you have this typical wording of how this word is used. Psalm 19, verse 1 says, the heavens declare the glory of God, so the heavens are going to help you to understand it, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. This is like if you would go outside of Santa Maria when, on a beautiful night and get away from the lights of the city, and you look up and you can actually see all the stars in the heavens, and it makes you kind of catch your breath. It's like, oh my, that is so amazing. And it makes us stand back in a little bit of awe. That's kind of what it's talking about. Now, kavod comes from this earlier word known as kaved. And kaved referred to a rich person who was loaded down with the weight of their gold and silver and jewelry. This then morphs into this word called kavod, which means weight and heaviness and significance. The heavens declare the weight, the heaviness, the significance, the largeness, the abundance of God. This idea of glory, it is something that is so big and so massive that it creates something inside of you that when you get the proper proportion of it, you have to catch your breath. Deep in your bones, you understand how the heavens declare the kavod of God, the weight, the honor, the significance. I did this illustration a few years ago on uh, Easter about this, and I took some sand with the fan, and I said, this is all created things, and the, and the fan kind of blew the sand. I took a brick, and I said, in this is the kavod of God. It doesn't move, it is sure. So coming out of Ecclesiastes, this is all created things. And like that is the kavod of God. It is solid, it is sure, it is not shaken. That is what that means. God, because kavod is like the foundation of the universe. One writer says this, kavod is the rumble of the universe that says everything could disappear, but this will stay. Kavod is what you come face to face with when you realize you are very small and God is very large. Kavod is what happens when you stare at the stars and you get the proper proportions in the universe and you realize that you are not the most important thing in the universe. And I would say it's also the difference between our words and the things that we say versus God's promises. Open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 33. Here, in Exodus 33, second book in the Old Testament, by the way, uh, Moses is conversing with God. He's having a conversation, and God's like, you're going to lead this group of people. And Moses is like, there are a bunch of whiners. Please don't make me do this. And God's like, you're a whiner, so that's how how it works. Israelites don't want to listen to him. And so God tells Moses, when you do this, I will be with you, Moses. That's another promise of God. So they have this whole discussion about God's companionship. So Exodus, uh, Exodus 33, verse 17, I'm going to read this out of the NIV. 
And the Lord said to Moses, I will do the very thing you have asked, which is another promise of God, because I am pleased with you and I know you by name. Then Moses said, now show me your glory. It's the word kavod. Okay, I want to see this kavod, God. And the Lord said, I will cause my goodness to pass in front of you. God does not say glory. God says goodness. And I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. And I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. God's response to Moses' ask is, I, I'm, I can't give it all to you because it would torture you where you stand. So I am going to show you my goodness, which is essentially my mercy to you. There is something about God's glory, his weight, his significance of who he is that Moses cannot fully get and neither can we. So God shows us his goodness. And how does he do that? Verse 20. But he said, you cannot see my face for no one may see me and live. Then the Lord said, there's a place near me where you may stand on a rock when my glory, my kabod, my weight, my significance of who I am passes by. I will put you in a cleft in the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will remove my hand and you will see my back, but my face must not be seen. Now, this is not because God is embarrassed of how he looks. Uh, This is not like, don't look at me. You know, you're beautiful. You know, it's, it's not that, right? This is the idea that sin can't stand in the presence of God. And so Moses couldn't stand fully before God or he'd been torched where he was. And so what God does is he places in this cleft of the rock, he covers him, and then he passes by. Now, rabbis have spoken about this. And they said that they believe that this is a euphemism for seeing the back of God is seeing the place where God just was. Moses says, let me see your glory. And what has God said? I'm going to show you goodness and mercy, and the best you can get is seeing the place where I just was. I think this is so true for all of our lives, right? We, we don't understand the glory, the kavod, the, the weight, the significance of God, and we typically see the place where God just was when God does something. And this is what he's kind of saying to Moses. There's no way you could handle seeing all of my glory. And so God's going to give Moses compassion. It's like, Moses, you watch out and you see the stars, and you have to catch your breath, and you want to see... All my glory? See, to understand the glory of God is to understand the, the awe and the reverence with humbleness, knowing who God is and then who we are, the proportions of this weight and size. And there's a lot more to it. If you want to hear more about it, go to this Easter message I did a few years ago. But i got to move this now to where we're going with this. Uh, this idea in Luke chapter 2 says, glory to God in the highest. Now, this is written in Greek. It's not written in Hebrew. So the word they use there is not kavod. I think it comes from that. I think the angels sing this song and the angels may even use the word kavod in, in the song. But Luke has to take a word and somehow make this translate to a Greek audience so they would understand what the angels are saying. And so this word that Luke uses is this word called doxa. Doxa. Doxa to God in the highest heavens. Now, doxa originally meant Thoughts or opinions. It's like there's God's doxa of things, the way that God sees things. So kavod to doxa really comes back to God's weight and the way that God sees things is the way that things really are. And eventually this word doxa in regard to God came to mean God's unchanging essence. That God is who he is. God always will be who he is. He does not shift. He does not change. He is not like vapor. He is solid and good. And the way that God sees things is the way things really are. And this is why God is good for his promises. Because he does not change. 
our view is all over the place, right? Depends on, you know, somebody cut you off in traffic, you know, how you feel when you roll out of bed in the morning. We're all over the place. Our thinking shifts. Our doxa is never in the same place. But God's is solid. His is secure and unchanging. And it's because of God's unchangingness, because of God's glory, that His promises are made true and manifest to us, and that peace is extended to us as a people. Who are those who please Him? Those who love His Son that God is heralding in this song. Now, why does God herald Jesus in this song? Well, you have to understand, it was commonplace in the first century when you had your firstborn son that you would herald the announcement of this son. That's a good news of this son's arrival. The culture viewed the firstborn son as the idea of God's fulfilled promise that he is taking care of you and he loves you and your lineage is intact. So upon the birth of a son, if you had any money whatsoever, uh, you would hire a herald. And if you had a little bit of money, they would come and stand in front of your house and go, so-and-so had a child born today in front of the house. If you have a lot of money, it'd be like a parade and all kinds of stuff going on, like all that kind of stuff. But, but you would herald the firstborn son. People do this today, right? You take baby pictures, you stick them on postcards, you send them to everybody because you're heralding the birth. Now, Mary and Joseph are broke. They wrap Jesus in swaddling cloths. They can't even afford baby clothes, right? They wrap him in rags. They can't get a room in the inn. And not only that, they're not even in their hometown. They're in a stable or a cave. But this is not just Mary and Joseph's baby. This is God's son, and God's going to herald it. I think the, the angels line up, and one gets ready and kind of breaks in. And here's the shepherd. <gasps> He's like, hold on, buddy. Hold on. Fear not. More's coming. Here we go, here we go. Boom! Glory to God in the heart. I don't know how it goes, right? <laughs> Glory to God. I don't know. You know, whatever it is, right? They reckon, and this song, and boom, and it takes off because God is heralding his son. And God doesn't do it in the temple where the religious people are. He doesn't do it in the palace where the powerful people are. He doesn't do it in the marketplace where the rich people are. Where does he do it? Shepherds, lost and broken, thieves, those who needed to hear the good news. It's a beautiful thing and how this all comes to take place. Here they are heralding this good news of who God is. Maybe today, you may not be a shepherd, but maybe you feel like, oh, you know, I've been a thief or had a bad reputation or given myself to someone or something that's destroying you. Maybe today you're sitting in the midst of shame. Jesus' birth announcement to you is good news of great joy that God is extending his peace to you through his son. That's the promise. That's what God's glory brings about. And you may say, oh, but I'm not worthy. Exactly. Great place to start. We are not worthy, but God is. And God is good for his promises of that weight and that significance. And he said he loves us and he wants us to be his. See, that holds more weight than what we think. It holds more weight than our doxa, right? God brings glory to himself by being the power, the authority, the presence by which all things happen. And God makes these promises, and he rescues, and he redeems, and he calls to himself, and he calls the weak and the broken, so he is most glorified. In 2 Corinthians 4, 7, the Apostle Paul says, when we embrace Jesus, we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are the jars of clay. God is the treasure inside of us. Let's say that we are fragile and he is not. We are weak, he is not. We are transient, he is not. We lose patience, he does not. God 
oftentimes, if not always, calls to himself the undesirable and the unlikely and the, and the unhealthy and the unlovely. The last people we would ever assume that God would call in our economics. That's who God calls. And this is why Christianity many times gets ridiculed by a lot of people in the world. Oh, look at those horrible people that call themselves Christians. Oh, Christians are a bunch of hypocrites. <laughs> yep. <laughs> it's true. It's true. Not that we want to be hypocrites. It's that that's who God is calling and saving because we recognize our need for what God is doing in our lives. And too often we play this ridiculous game where most of us don't think we're bad people. We think we know bad people, but we're not those bad people. The truth is, all of us, we love things we shouldn't love. We pursue things we shouldn't pursue. We cherish things more than we cherish the God of the universe who made us. We have all had anger or rage in our hearts. We have lusted physically or emotionally over something or somebody. We all fail. We all fall. But we are all wicked and depraved. And yet when the angel shows up and says, good news, joy for all people, he's referring to us too. That's the beauty of what God is doing. And it's interesting to note that this message is given to those shepherds. The first to go out and tell the thing that everybody was wondering about was the shepherds. The most messed up people get to tell the good news. Sometimes when you talk to some crazy person who believes in Jesus, you're like, man, you're a weirdo. But, you know... Yeah, we all are just a little bit. The sky goes black after this whole thing takes place. The angels leave and these shepherds are like, well, let's go see what this thing that God just promised if it took place. And then they go and they see. What I think is funny is that they apparently just wander through stables and caves until they find Jesus and, and Mary and Joseph. Because can you imagine it? Get away from my horse. Okay, it's not this one, right? And then, <laughs> until they find him. When they find him, what do they do? They sit there and they worship and they become heralds. The first evangelist in the Bible are thieves who have been given good news in the midst of their thievery. See, today, all of us, we get to partake in that same role as those shepherds. We are people who have been saved by God's glory and His grace of His promises that come to rescue us. And we now get to be heralds in our neighborhoods and in our workplaces and our families of this joy of God's promises. I mean, the angels crack open the sky into a group of thieves and says, Good news! Joy for all people! And that good news is weightier than anything we could have known. And so that's what we proclaim. One writer says it like this. May we not waste our lives by not doing it. When we talk about this word called the gospel, okay, the gospel comes from this word called evangelion. And what, what that means is the proclamation of a good news, right? You, you know, we got rain and it's filling up the lakes or you got a job promotion or you got a Christmas bonus. Those, those are our proclamations of good news. But when we speak about the gospel, we talk about the good news of what God is proclaiming in the scriptures. This is why we use that word, gospel, the proclamation of the good news that God is good for his promises. And God has promised that he would rescue us from the moment we ran away from him. And he does this in the person of Jesus. When we come to communion, it's this reminder that Jesus didn't stay a baby. Jesus grew into a man, lived a perfect life that we can never live, and so gives his righteousness to us as a gift. He takes our sin upon himself on that cross, and that's why you break the cracker like Christ's body was broken for us. It's a reminder. You dip it in the wine of the grape juice. It reminds us of his blood that was shed for you and me so that we get to be a people who step into God's grace of his promises of peace extended to us because of what Jesus has done. That's the proclamation of the good news. And then we now, as the results of that good news, get to be people like the shepherds. And we get to share what God has done. And you might think, yeah, but i got to have my life all together to even talk about this. No, you don't, because the shepherds didn't. 
They didn't. And you look at a lot of people in the Bible who start following Jesus, and they just start talking about him to everybody. I mean, just person who God saves after person God saves after person God saves. And they start speaking of this good news because they can't hold it in. And I think too often in our culture, it's like, yeah, I love Jesus. You know, it's like, seriously, what are we doing? We proclaim the good news of God's weight and significance that brought about rescue to us. The band's going to come up. As they do, I'm going to invite you if you need prayer. Maybe you're in a place today where you have some shame in your life that you know, maybe you feel like a thief. Maybe, maybe you know, right before you came to church, you, you kicked your crack pipe under a rock so no one would see it. I don't know. But if, but if you need prayer, they would love to pray with you. They would love to pray with you because God's goodness is extended to you because of his promises, because of his glory, because of what he said he would do, God is good for. And they would love to pray with you about that, wherever you are, whatever you are going through, because God is simply good. So we love him and worship him. If you want someone to sit and talk and pray with you, they'd love to do that. And we have offering boxes next to every door, and we give because God gave so much to us that giving is simply part of that worship. So we don't pass the plate. Uh, There's some snacks outside. Grab some summer notes. Meet some people this week, and maybe start talking through some of those things about, you know, the glory of God versus seeking our own glory. When we understand God's glory and his significance, how that changes who we are and how that brings about the promises that he has made to us of his goodness, of his rescue, of the hope that we get to live in because of God's own glory. Because it is not about us. It is about him and his rescue and saving of us. And that's, that's the beauty of Christmas, guys. And that's the thing we've we got to learn is, is the beauty of Christmas is God's rescue and redemption and bringing about his promises. Let's pray. Father, this morning, I ask that you would remind us especially in this Christmas season where it seems like there's so many things that distract us, where every song that is sung and every TV show that comes on is about the spirit of Christmas. And the spirit of Christmas apparently is uh, gift-giving and Santa and things like that. And God, bring us back to an understanding through the midst of all of that to be able to to speak about you in a way that makes sense. Have us begin to understand our own salvation, our own hope, in ways that we can speak of your goodness that has been extended to us, of the peace that has come to us because of your glory. God, I ask that you would move all of us to a place of humbleness and recognition of who you are, and that that would in turn change us in ways that make us humble before you as we understand more deeply what you did to bring us back into relationship with you again. Has be a people who, who understand and can proclaim the gospel, the good news of your rescue of us, your righteousness placed upon us as you take our sin upon yourself. And that we can then walk out in great peace and hope, being heralds of that peace to all we come into contact with. Father, teach us to be those who trust you for who you are in all things. We ask this in your son's good name. Amen.